Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Don Porter's Deadlocked. How America Shaped the Supreme Court is a four-part Showtime documentary series that traces the modern history of the Supreme Court, the people, the decisions, and the confirmation battles that have shaped America. From our right to privacy, to access to the ballot, and all rights protected by the Constitution, the nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court have the final word on issues that shape our democracy and our daily lives. We're joined today by the director of this wonderful four-part series that will be premiering on Showtime on September 22nd. That would be Don Porter. Don, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, a timely documentary series, literally ripped from the headlines of that we're living through right now. Uh, when did you start? When did you begin this process? Because it couldn't come at a better time. Sometimes you just get lucky. You kind of, you know, topics are kind of swimming in the in the zeitgeist they're in the ether um i we actually started this about three years ago and it started when uh vinnie malhotra who's uh, the executive in charge at showtime at the time showtime documentaries we knew each other and he called me up he knew my background as a lawyer he knew that i've been doing some historical projects and he said do you want to do something on the supreme court and i said yes but so it took a little bit to figure out what that was going to be. There's so much and there's so much history. How do you how do you tell the story of the Supreme Court? Kind of started with a confirmation process. Um, that was the original idea. That was the idea because, you know, as we got into the research, learning Earl Warren had no confirmation hearing. He was the governor of California. He wasn't even a practicing lawyer. He was promised the job. Maybe that's some kind of affirmative action. He was promised the job by Eisenhower and appointed into the next open seat, which happened to be the seat of the chief justice. And so this governor of California goes right into becoming the Supreme Court chief justice, you know, the United States. So that was fascinating. And then re-watching the archival of Thurgood Marshall's questioning in both of his confirmations for Solicitor General, but also for Supreme Court position, where he was just eviscerated by white Southern Democrats who, you know, Marshall won 29 of 32 times that he argued before the Supreme Court. He literally dismantled segregation in America and largely threw his arguments to the Supreme Court of the United States also largely embarrassed a number of these Southern senators. And so they were violently opposed to his nomination. Um, and so, you know, asked him humiliating questions. Uh, what was, you know, in the framers' mind when they wrote paragraph 42, section subset B, blah, 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 blah. I mean, questions that are, you know, absurd and, and impossible to answer. So watching those, and then of course, Judge Bork, um, and that controversial hearing, the conservative uh, judge would be justice who, you know, Judge Bork's mistake was telling people what he thought. And then after Bork, no one did that anymore. <laughs> they, you know, it was an exercise in obfuscation. So we kind of started there. And then as the research went on um, and what people will see when they watch the series is 200 minutes of it is archived. Um, and, I, and I emphasize that because I think it's really important today 
when people are questioning what they hear and they don't believe what they see, that we did our best to show you what people said in their own words and then to, to contextualize it with some really smart um, you know, commentators. People, either they've not been taught or they don't remember you know, this history of where how our court, court has evolved. Then we kind of shifted to broaden it. And so, you know, it's really grateful to Showtime for giving us four hours. You know, that's kind of rare these days for something, you know, serious like this. And um, so we get to, to focus in on a really um, important time period in the court. It is broken up into four different episodes. And one of the things I really admire and like about the way you went about doing that is you told this history, this archival history or the history and, and through the archival footage but you contextualize it throughout in terms of where, what does that mean? How does that echo forward towards where, to what we are today? It is also a wonderful document to just how systematic the change in the Supreme Court has been. This isn't a random set of political realities of the moment. There was a plan many, many years ago, either it was written down or it was agreed upon in some way by the conservative part of our political establishment. I don't, I, I don't want to ascribe anything too positive to it, except to say that it was it was thorough, it was well thought through, and the idea of putting nine, well, not nine, but people in these very powerful positions who, as we are now finding out by the day, how unaccountable they really are. Is, is it not only is an important lesson, an important part of, the, I think, the telling of the story, but it's something that I think most Americans did not think about or understand the ramifications of. Is that a fair way to put it? I, I, I think that's that's really fair. I mean, there, you know, when we look back to the history of the court, and we start with the Warren court, which is uh, the more liberal court, that's it's the court that brings us Brown v. Board of Education. It, it brings... Uh, uh, the right to have Miranda warning. So, you know, having the police be required to tell you what protections you have as a citizen, having the right to attorney. We didn't have the right to attorney in this in this country until the Supreme Court decision in Gideon v. Wainwright. So all of those decisions come out of this, this Warren court. And Richard Nixon campaigns on rolling back those decisions. He makes the Supreme Court a central part of his campaign for the presidency. And people forget, like, Hubert Humphrey almost won. Um, it was a close election. And so our country could have been vastly different because Richard Nixon gets four appointments to the Supreme Court. He literally campaigns on remaking the court, and he tries his best to do just that. Ronald Reagan has four appointments to the Supreme Court. So, you know, when you think elections matter, who is in power matters, both at the presidency so the president nominates people, but the Senate confirms. And so another huge character in our evolution here is Mitch McConnell, who has been in the Senate for so many decades. And in the series, we have you know then Senator McConnell, who was furious after very conservative ideologue judge um, Robert Bork is not, not confirmed. And Mitch McConnell vows then that he also will withhold consent the next time that he is in the position to do so. And fast forward 30 years, and we watch him do just that. He won't even give Merrick Garland a hearing more than 260 days before the next presidential election. 
Mitch McConnell controls the Senate. He controls that calendar and he refuses to give a hearing to Barack Obama's nominated pick. Fast forward then to 2020, when it's 23 days before the election, when Amy Coney Barrett is nominated to replace Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and McConnell pushes that nomination and confirmation through. Yeah, there's no shortage of hypocrisy, just blatant hypocrisy in all of this. One of the things about this sort of plan effort to take over the courts that is also so anti quote unquote democracy is that since the election of George Bush to the presidency in 1988, the Republicans have lost every single popular vote for president since then. They are, they've, they've lost, the only one they won was in 2004 when it was the wartime vote after the invasion of Iraq. That's the only time they've won the popular vote. And this kind of cyclical, you know, what you're talking about, if Al Gore had been president, and let's not forget that the Supreme Court made George Bush president, even though we now know that Gore actually did win Florida, but by by decree from the Supreme Court, this is the power. This is what this means to our democracy and the importance of understanding all of this. Again, I want to make sure I'm being fair about this and being accurate, but that's what happened. What I will say is elections matter. You know, I don't think there's some grand conspiracy. The mm -hmm. rules are what they right. what they are. Right. Um, but I do think we have to look for where there is place for abuse of the rules, where you can march right up to the limit of legality and yet still do something that feels unfair. Right. So does Mitch McConnell have the power to, with to withhold advice and consent? Yes, he does. Yeah. So do we agree with that? That's the question for, for the public, is yeah. if you don't agree with that, your voice is in making sure that you go out and you don't send people back to office if you don't agree with that. There are also, you know, some forces that have come together that we did not see um, in prior years. And chief among those are the Federalist Society. Yes. And so the Federalist Society, which begins, you know, kind of as a debating um, entity, it begins as with concerned conservatives who feel that law school professors are too liberal and the conservative ideology is not being taught or expressed, you know, that, that's valid. Everybody should make sure their opinions are heard. But what you start to see the federal society do over time is to groom and recruit judges with a particular type of conservative ideology that is more than just small government you know, non-interference with, um, you know, corporations and taxes. It is much more, um, they are much more reaching into the social realm. Anti-choice is a, is a, you know, prerequisite. So you don't find pro-choice Republicans getting much love from the Federalist Society. And so the power and emergence of the Federalist Society, which Amanda Hollis-Brusky and uh, Steve Vladek, who are some experts in our theories speak to, that is coupled with a president in Donald Trump who is more than willing to literally hand over his choices to this ideological group and say, you tell me who to pick. And yeah. he, we, you see the archive where he yeah. says the federal society, you know, they basically gave him the list. Donald Trump didn't know who to appoint. So when you have that happening, then it's a new ballgame. Because now we're not just talking about the vagaries of the, the politics where people come in the arena and they fight it out for public opinion. You're talking about 
a group that is not beholden to the public, that is able to get its will seen through. And in fact, Justices Amy Coney Barrett, supported by the Federal Society, Kavanaugh, um, Gorsuch, all three of the, the, you know, the, the formation, the triangle of the ultra conservative bloc, all of these people are pushed through over the last decades by that, that secretive group. And so that's what we're talking about that people need to be concerned about. That is also why we're not just in a, sometimes the conservatives win and sometimes the, the liberals win. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, a much different situation. And so, you know, then is when you start to think maybe this calls for a different kind of response. And just to clarify what I said earlier, I was speaking more to the power of the, the Supreme Court, its ability to to basically step in and make decisions in, in a situation like that they faced with Gore and Bush in 2000. So, you know, yeah. the situation they faced with Gore and Bush, I mean, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor said maybe we shouldn't have stopped in. What the Supreme Court did, if people remember, is they stopped Florida from counting the ballot. That's what they did. And so, and you know, um, Justice Roberts, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and Justice Kavanaugh were all part of the team getting George Bush elected. Is that illegal? No. Is it unethical? No. But is it something to be aware of? Absolutely. Yeah. We're speaking with uh, Dawn Porter. She is the director and executive producer of this terrific documentary film series that's coming out on Showtime on September 22nd, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. And one, just within the last few minutes um, I have with you, the Supreme Court has more or less been a forum for business interests, people with money to settle disputes. It wasn't until Dred Scott, Plessy, Board of Education in, in, in the mid-50s that the courts began to shift into addressing social issues and i don't know if <laughs> i don't know if i don't want to lead you but down this path too far but the originalists is what what they call themselves the federalist society they're originalists meaning that they take the literal meaning of the original document of this constitution and in some ways many of them argue that excluding the bill of rights by the way that's that's for some and i'm not going to say ascribe it to all of the originalists but that's for some they do that is essentially a racist document and so when I hear them talk about them being originalist and over and over with a sense of pride that they have without any sort of consideration or some some kind of, by the way, I don't mean that part, it, it troubles me deeply. You know, um, we could have done um, all the hours and more on the intersection of race and Supreme Court history. Yeah. I mean, from Dred Scott, uh, who is not allowed to sue because the Supreme Court doesn't believe he's a person, to... Roe or Richard Nixon says he believes in abortion for a black and a white, you know, that audio is in our series to, you know, the uh, Jerry Falwell and the evangelicals who want to get involved in Supreme Court politics in order to save their tax exemptions for racially segregated schools. So race has always been a part of this. I am really glad that you point to there was a specific point in time when the Supreme Court had a different idea of itself. It said, wait a minute, we can do more than talk about the Commerce Clause. We can actually talk about the Bill of Rights. We can talk about what we guarantee to all citizens. And I think what that should be is a very hopeful reminder for people that the court once stepped back and said, we have this power and we should use it wisely. And so 
there we saw a court that led and that protected the rights of the least powerful among us. That's the court that most people remembered, and that's not the court that we have today. And so when we think about what the court can be, I wanted people to understand the history of what it was. Yes. And so that's, you know, that's the impetus for doing this series. There's no plan B. There's no other court to go to. We have the one that we have. And so we need to work to strengthen it, improve it, and protect it. Um, and, and I hope people will think about their role in it. And people in positions of power and responsibility are talking about how can we reform the court? How can we, there should be a code of ethics. What are the, what are the things we can do to ensure that the court, this unelected body with virtually no oversight and, and no accountability beyond what they issue in their rulings, what can we do? to make it a stronger, more effective democracy. That's right. Thank you so much, Don Porter. Um, known for such films as Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, John Lewis, Good Trouble, Gideon's Army, Spies of Mississippi, and so, so many more in this one as well. It's a wonderful series called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, premiering on Showtime September 22nd. As always, a pleasure to talk with you, and I, I look forward to, to more conversations and more work from you, Don Porter. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.